This episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast is brought to you by HostGator, where you'll get 24-7 live support via chat, phone, email, one-click WordPress installs, easy-to-use website builder design services and marketing services like SEO and PPC, and for my listeners, a 30% discount. Go to HostGator.com slash promo slash duct tape. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Duct Tape Marketing Podcast. This is John Jansen. My guest today is Guy Kawasaki. He is the Chief Evangelist Officer of Canva and uh, was uh, certainly well known for uh, in the nascent days of evangelism as the Chief Evangelist for Apple. I knew you'd like that. Are you, uh, are you implying I'm 2,000 years old? <laughs> no, I just I think you created an entire industry of evangelism. I think. Well, you know, there, there was Jesus before me, but yeah. <laughs> uh, he's the author of a, at least 12 books, maybe more than that. Uh, uh, I've interviewed him about seven times on this show for various books, and uh, we're going to talk today about his latest book, The Art of the Start 2. 2.0, the time-tested, battle-hardened guide for anyone starting anything. So, Guy, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me back. You'd think by now I would get this right. Well, so, you, you know what? Um, yeah. I bet you there are very few people who can say this next statement. I interviewed you for The Art of the Start 1.0 on my, wow. on my podcast, and 10 years later, here you are again. How many people do you think can say Holy that? Holy nobody. <laughs> So wow, uh, I started my podcast. You know, the first time they were cool, and uh, and now that they're uh, you know really cool again. Uh, of course, everybody has one, but uh, it uh, pretty pretty amazing. Uh, when I started wow. preparing, preparing for this, I had that thought. I, I, that never occurred to me. That is <laughs> truly amazing. Now I have actually both books here. Um, on my desk right now, and um, the second one's bigger. You had to actually write some more stuff. This isn't just a revision, is it? <laughs> I, I, you know, John, hard, hard to hard to admit. Uh, yeah, I had to work. Uh, this is like it's kind of like software, right? So you think, oh, I'll just make a slight revision, enhancement, fix a few bugs, you know, add a few features to my software. And then you go in and you say, well, this architecture sucks. I yeah, just right. need to like <laughs> do it all over again. And then what became a you know, slight 1.01, 1.1 kind of upgrade becomes a 2.0 upgrade. Yeah. And that's yeah, but, exactly what happened. Yeah, that's actually interesting. I know when I've tried to use some previously written thing and shoehorn a couple new ideas in, it's actually more work than just turning yeah. it and starting it, over, isn't it? It really is. People don't realize yeah. that, that it's... It's just not logical. What you think is easy is hard, and what's hard is easy. Yeah. So um, let's define what is a startup today, because I think there's a lot of confusion about that. I mean, if I'm if I'm that guy that wants to start an insurance agency, you know, with State Farm, is that a startup as much as that guy that created a device to play with his cats virtually via phone? I think so. Uh, who are we to judge that? You know, startups are only things from Silicon Valley that are made by millennials wearing skinny jeans who have, you know, messenger bags and horn facial, facial glasses. Hair. Facial hair, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> who drink coconut water and <laughs> do yoga. Um, I think it's anybody starting anything. And yeah. it's just become more of a democracy because the costs are so much lower. It's just good for everybody. Yeah. 
Well, imagine, you know, we talked about the, a decade between these books. I mean, <laughs> the changing startup landscape oh my God. over the last yeah. 10 years, huh? Yeah, a lot. So in book number one, there was no such thing as social media, Yeah. right? right. And so... Crowdfunding, uh, crowdfunding. Yeah, no crowdfunding, yeah, yeah. no cloud computing, no uh, you know, using of, of Amazon S3 and using Google Hangouts on air and Skype and all this kind of stuff, right? All that is free or at least very cheap now. Yeah. And so it's, it's very different. And back then you had to write a business plan. Today you don't have to write a business plan. There are lots of changes. Yeah. So, so let's start right with that first one then. You know, what, um, you know, how, do you, how do you get the idea? How do you incubate the idea? Because yeah. you know, I, I think there's probably, if, if somebody's listening to this show that hasn't started a business, they want to. Um, so you know, how does that come about? Because you know, I, I started my own business 25 years ago, and I used to laugh and tell people that uh, that was kind of code for you couldn't get a job. Yeah. Um, but, but now, boy, you know, starting a business is everyone's dream. Yes, it is. It's a good thing. So I think that contrary to what people may believe, that um, entrepreneurs start companies because of these like megalomaniac dreams of someday dominating a space, that it usually starts with very simple questions like, you know, what if or isn't it interesting that or why doesn't my company do this? And it's really sort of about discovery and creating the tool that you want to use. And lo and behold, it's more than just you. That yeah. wants to use it. Yeah, yeah. How many great businesses have been started because somebody said, "I can't get X, Y, Z to do it, so I'm going to do it myself." Right, and <laughs> and then yeah, thirty years go by, and now you're Apple computer, right? Yeah, right. And, and the 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 people, the experts say, "Hmm." So thirty years ago, Steve Jobs had a vision, and in his vision, there were personal computers, there were personal devices, there were you know, phones and pods and pads and tablets. There was online buying. There was e-commerce. Uh, you know, I don't know what drug they're on, but you know, yeah, yeah. back then in the garage, Stephen was we're trying to figure out how to sell 20 motherboards, right? And, yeah. and, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we didn't have to go to a university or a government or a, uh, a large company to use a computer? Let's try to build our own computer. That's the genesis of Apple. Well, and, and that brings up a good a, a good thought. Or um, I, mean, I think, you know, if somebody's going to start a business, would you say that hey, we can make a whole bunch of money doing this? Is probably not the greatest motivation. That a better motivation is this is something I'm really passionate about, or or you know, this is a this is a problem I want to solve. Well, I, I think it takes both. You know, that I don't think that Steve and Waz, even in their purest, most geeky uh, state, ever thought well. It'd be cool to build a personal computer, but we don't care about the money. I mean, yeah, right. you know, at some level, every entrepreneur cares about the money. But I think there are entrepreneurs who care only about the money. Yeah. And so yeah, they're like, they read an article that you know, some, some large consulting firm says the market for, I don't know, shrimp farming will be $10 billion. And they say, huh, I don't know anything about shrimp farming. It looks attractive. Why don't we go make a shrimp farming company, right? And yeah. they're not from a family of shrimp farmers. They don't care about seafood. You know, they live in Indiana. They're not even close to a shrimp farm. And, but they're, they're kind of market-driven. They're MBA analysis, right? Yeah. I, I don't think that leads to great companies at all. 
So one of the things I found really interesting was you talk about, um, you know, in startups, and I, I think you're using your own experience uh, to a great deal, uh, that a lot of people think, well, gosh, I don't know accounting or I don't know marketing, and then that's the yeah. hard stuff. And, and you say that actually the hard stuff is learning how to lead. Yeah, I, I, that's been my experience in life. And when I was in school, which is admittedly in the previous century, uh, I, I really thought that the, the hard stuff was finance and operations research and, you know, physics and math. And what I've come to realize is um, those kinds of things you can hire specialists to do. But really the hard part is figuring out, you know, what the company should make, figuring out who to hire and how to motivate them. And it's all the soft stuff that's hard. And so the soft stuff is hard and the hard stuff is soft. So Yeah. I, I think a lot of people again, I think that's that's terribly insightful. And as somebody who's you know, tried to build my own business in various versions for a long time, I, I would totally agree with that. I'm yeah, you know, I'm I'm a terrible boss. Um, <laughs> you know. And so, you know, that's that's a challenge I have. Yeah. Well, uh, Ad, admitting it is the first step. Yeah, absolutely. Because then you can do something about it. Then you, yeah. can, then you can hire a psychiatrist. Well, you can hire a psychiatrist, <laughs> but also, you know, you have to come to the realization that the CEO cannot be good at everything. Yeah. And so you need to hire complementary people. So, you know, Steve had Waz. Right. And in a sense, Waz had Steve. Because, yep. you know, if you were depending on Waz closing a sale... Uh, let's just say you'd go hungry. So um, yeah, it takes both kind of people. Yeah. So I have heard you talk about you know pitching and raising funds, and I think you have some very distinct advice on how you should go about doing that. Yes. Well, I have distinct advice on a lot of things. Well, that is very true. We won't get, we won't get into <laughs> hockey though because I don't know anything about it. <laughs> okay. So uh, basically, I think that. Well, first of all, we have to ask the question, are you appropriate for venture capital? Because venture capital only funds several thousand companies in the world a year. Right. And venture capitalists are looking for the next Google and YouTube and Facebook and Apple. So they don't want to fund clothing stores. They don't want to fund restaurants and consultancies. Now, you may create the next great retail store with 3,000 outlets, but it, uh, that, that is a very different game um, I don't think that a venture capitalist would fund McDonald's today. Hmm. So now there are exceptions. Somebody just funded this place that only makes cheese sandwiches. So it can happen. But generally speaking, you know, ask yourself uh, without without being too inebriated. Can you imagine a time where your business is doing two, three, four, five hundred million dollars in business? Right. And that doesn't describe most restaurants, clothing stores. And consultancies. That's the game. Now, luckily, there's this wonderful development in the past 10 years called crowdfunding. And this has a lot of advantages because it's faster. It's real customers. So they're really voting with their dollars, not some pension funds dollars that, you know, the venture capitalist doesn't really care about. Yeah. And it's it doesn't create shareholders because basically people are pre-buying um, a product, a gizmo, they're not investing and getting equity. So you're not adding shareholders. Yeah, and I think obviously that's, you know, how, how many uh, owners have gone down that path, taken some money, and next thing they knew, they, they no longer own the company, right? Yes, yes. And and just you know, as a word of caution, many people think that it's sort of pure math, that as long as you and your, your allies and co-founders own 
51 or more percent of the company, they control the company. But that is not true. Um, as soon as you take outside investors, you're working for the outside investors. Yeah. And there certainly have been uh, books written about that, even companies that have, have grown nicely and said, hey, you know, we, we, maybe we could have grown faster. Maybe we could all bought bigger boats sooner. <laughs> but yeah. we, we decided not to take that, that funding because we wanted that control. Uh, I, think, I think that is a, a good attitude. Uh, not so much because of the control issue, because the control issue implies that there's going to be a major difference where the investors want to do something and you want to do something. Yeah. Um, I think most of the time it's pretty obvious what you should do, and there's not a lot of controversy. You know, I've never been in a board meeting where there was a board vote about, yes, we're going to run this ad or not, or we're going to hire this person or not, or we're going to go after this market or not. Um, usually board meetings are very sort of affirmative and they're usually all sort of, you know, everybody's voting the same way. Yeah. So, uh, you know, these are some myths that people need to learn. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, you also give some great advice on just the, the pure art of pitching, even if it's not to a, you know, a giant VC for, you know, yeah. Series A funding or something, but just yeah. just you want somebody to give you ten grand to get your idea off. The, yeah. Uh, what What do you have to do in order to influence? Whether it's that VC or it's that angel. I mean, what do you have to well, do to, okay. to influence? So, so some tips. First of all, uh, you need to begin. You need even before the pitch, you need to do your research. Yep. So you need to figure out what the background of these people are, where they're coming from, what they've invested in. And, and you may do some investigation and decide not to meet with them. And that's okay. That's better than wasting their time and yours. So it starts with research. And then once you're in the meeting, uh, you have to be totally prepared. And by this, you know, I'll get right down into some tactics that, you know, you, you need to bring two laptops. You need to bring your own projector. You need to bring everything on a USB stick. You need to bring things print it out. I mean, figure that everything that can go wrong will go wrong. <laughs> right. So that's number one. Number two is get there early. You don't want to get there after the meeting's supposed to start and then try to make your Windows laptop work with the projector. <laughs> uh, and then, the key, so let's suppose everything's, you know, honky-dory, laptops working, you know, you've done your research. Then the key metaphor is there are two kinds of airplanes, right? So one is a uh, 47 or A380 or an 87, and it takes two miles to get into the air. Another is an F-18. It's on the it's on our aircraft carrier deck. There's a steam catapult, and it has 300 feet to get off. And this catapult is just going to slam you into the air, right? Yeah. That's what a pitch should be like. It's not this two-mile runway where you talk about your family heritage, where you grew up, what courses you took, you know, introduce all the co-founders. Everybody tells their personal story because you're trying to show that you're a team and all that BS. I mean, basically, you have 1.2 seconds to get into the air. And after 1.2 seconds, everybody in the room needs to understand what you do. You know, you're a software company, you're Canva, you're an online graphics design service, you know. So, that's what it takes because until then, everybody's wondering who the hell is in this. Well, they're not well, – actually, I take that back. They're not wondering who the hell is in the room. They're wondering what do these people do because if what you do is interesting, then they'll care who you are. But if what you're doing is not interesting, 
who cares if you, your family came across on the Mayflower and now, you know, they've endowed a building and chair at Dartmouth and, you know, well, <laughs> who you, you cares know, it's about interesting. I've actually heard some VC. I mean, I, I think that's true whether you're marketing anything, right? Yes. Uh, but I've heard some VCs say that they put a lot of emphasis on, you know, what have the founders done before or what have the people involved you know, yes. done before that might point to the fact that they actually could pull this off no matter how great the idea true. is. True. <laughs> uh, I, I don't. I, I'm not saying that that's in opposition with what I said. And we're talking strictly about the pitch, yeah, right? right? And so I think the key part of the pitch is explaining what you do. And if what you do is interesting, then they'll want reinforcement that you can actually pull it off. But if you come in with a dumbass idea, <laughs> it doesn't matter how great your background is. Yeah, um, yeah you, might ju- you might just be able to hang on a little longer. Well, I, I think I – think, <laughs> I think a lot of it is that um, if you fall in love with an idea, then you're looking for reinforcement about the people. Yeah. Yeah. But I think it's much harder to make people fall in love with you as a person and then fall in love with a dumbass idea. Um, do you believe – I personally believe that it's it's much easier to uh, understand a market when – particularly when you are – a member of that target market that helps, um, yes. but do you think that that's absolutely necessary? Because I think I see a lot of companies, particularly startups, fail because they just assume, oh, this market wants this, you know, terribly, yeah. right? Yeah, I, I think that's a very bad assumption. To me, the richest vein for startup is two guys, two gals, a gal and a guy. They're making a product that they want to use, right. and then you just hope to hell that they're not the only two people in the world who want to use that. Yeah. And way back in my career, uh, I was uh, an investor and I uh, was on the board of directors of a company that made basically what they were trying to do is make an Excel killer, right? Mm -hmm. So this would be a a different kind of spreadsheet, a different way of modeling, a different way of input, you know, all this kind of stuff, just a a different spreadsheet paradigm. And I never use spreadsheets, but I convinced myself that, hmm, if I were a CFO, I would use this. If I were an accountant, I would use this. Now, I am not a CFO and I'm not an accountant, but I convinced myself that hmm, if I were, I would use this. And needless to say, I lost money on that deal. And I kind of learned a lesson there that, you know, if you, if you don't think you would use it or if you, th- you have to imagine that you're somebody else who you're not, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of dangerous. I mean, it would be like you and I trying to trying to create a product for millennials. Like if I were 25, I would use this. Well, let's just face it. You know, we're not 25. We don't know how they think. We don't know what they like, you know, like, so yeah, maybe we could get lucky. Don't get me wrong. But um, I think, you know, millennials should make products for millennials and old people should make products for old people, basically. Well, well, or, um, (laughs) you know, I guess one of the things I think a lot of companies make is the the mistake they make is they say, this is a great product, let's make it and then go out there and sell it. And I think a lot of successful companies have actually said, I have an idea, let's go out there and start asking millennials. I may be be an old guy, but let's go start asking millennials (laughs) if they actually like this. And then we discover, oh, no, they would never buy that in that way. But if we did this and this and this to it, so then we yeah. come up with you know customer development that way, or we we use some other groovy startup terms like pivot, um, <laughs> and and I, but I think that's really essential no matter what you're doing is to go out there and let you know find somebody saying hey I need something yes. you know as opposed to you going out there and saying you need this yes well unless you're Steve Jobs Steve Jobs can pull that off yeah but 
But I, th- I tell you what the danger is with that is that um, when you go out and you ask people, you know, would you use this? There's a lot of factors going on, such as being polite, yeah. right? So most people are polite and they, even if they might not use it, they might tell you they would use it. Right. Or they certainly won't tell you, you know, you're, you're clueless, no one in their right mind would use it. Um, they also, you know, there's, there's like the personal interaction. There's a lot of factors going on. And you're also asking people to imagine something, right? So I think if you're going to do this, at least go and do this with a prototype. Mm-hmm. So show them a website. Show them a gadget. Don't say, uh, let me describe this thing to you. Because I mean, t- to use a facetious example, let's say in 1983, I met with you, John. I said, okay, John, so I'm going to make this computer. It's going to be taller than wider. It's going to have a black and white display. <laughs> And there's going to be these little things that look like trash cans and paintbrushes and little documents and file folders. And it's going to be really slow and really expensive and it won't have any software. What do you think, John? <laughs> Are you telling me, yeah, go build a Macintosh? I don't think so. Yeah. Well, it's interesting you've, because you've mentioned Steve Jobs a number of times. I mean, I think I read – I probably won't get this exactly right, but, uh, um, you know, he, he – I think commonly said that I don't really want to go out and get all this research and input because they don't know what they need. That's right. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm going to create this thing and then they'll realize, wow, I never knew I needed a device that would allow me to carry around 10,000 yeah. you know, songs on it. Well, Steve Jobs either knew what people needed that people didn't even know right. or he created something and convinced those people they needed it. Yeah. It's, it's not clear which one he did. <laughs> One of the things you address that I think is tough for a lot of startups is, you know, you, you start having a little success or maybe you get a little funding so that you can grow faster. How do you, how do you effectively build a team if you've never done that before? I, I think the key to building a team is the realization that for every functional area, you need to hire people who are better than you yeah. at that area. Yeah. Th- that's the single most important thing because if you do that, then – you know, you'll have strength in your organization. And that's the key. That really is the key. You, we talked about uh, this, uh, your, your early days as a, uh, t- with the title of evangelism um, in there. Do you, do you think every company needs that idea, whether it's an actual role or, or if that just becomes their marketing in general? <sighs> that's a good question. You know, evangelism is a path to success. It's not the only path to success. So uh, let me define evangelism. So evangelism arguably is the purest form of marketing and sales. And evangelism comes from Greek words meaning bringing the good news. So with Macintosh, I believed I was bringing the good news of a new kind of computer. With Canva, where I'm chief evangelist now, I believe I'm bringing the good news about a service that will democratize design. So when you have a product or a service that incites that kind of passion, evangelism can work. But it's not the only way. I mean, you know, you could be the low-cost producer and you go in saying, all right, so we'll save you a bunch of money. Uh, It's a way. I don't think it's the only way. Yeah, I I guess the the thing that was the common thread there is there has to be, in some ways, you have to have an idea of how you're trying to change something or um, even if it's just people's thinking about, you know, a whole category. Yeah, it really is. And at some level, yes, I think that uh, 
evangelism, whether you want to call it evangelism or not, is a necessary skill. I mean, you have to believe in your heart that you are not just filling your sales quota, but you are making people's lives better. And if you make people's lives better, one of the natural consequences is you'll make money. So um, this is called Guy's Golden Touch. And uh, Guy's Golden Touch is not whatever I touch turns to gold. Guy's Golden Touch is whatever is gold, Guy touches. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, the thing about that, um, that, that idea of particularly as the owner evangelizing, we tend to think about that you know, from a marketing point of view. But it's also a, a tremendous way to attract talent. Yes. To an organization, right? I mean, you were, you were I, I'm guessing that, that you saw something that Canva was doing and that really attracted you. And, and then when they waved, you know, a big pot of money at you, of course, you had to go there too. But, <laughs> but, but I'm sure that that was, you know, that, they were able to attract Guy Kawasaki to do this role because you believed something they were doing, I'm, I'm guessing. A- absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, uh, I love social media and I believe that you can double your engagement by adding a picture or a video to all your posts. And Canva is just an outstanding way to create graphics for all your posts, your email lists, your, uh, you know, your cover photo, your avatar, all this kind of stuff. And so I, I truly do believe that everybody needs to use this. And uh, I, I've, I've only been an evangelist uh, you know, a few times in my life when I truly do believe that it will make people's lives better. Yeah, I, I I will say though that you know please refrain from just simply putting inspirational quotes in your images because it doesn't make them any less annoying. <laughs> I, I have a, I have, I have a graphic that shows what we call the badass unicorn. So this is a unicorn that is like smoking sunglasses. <laughs> this is this is the Anthony Bourdain of unicorns. Okay. And the thing says, you know, you should stop reading inspiration quotes and just man up. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So uh, let me finish up with uh, with with. I, I started asking guests this question because it's a great way for me to find new resources. Where do you get your idea? I mean, who do your ideas? You know, who do you read? Who do you admire? Who do you follow? Oh, that is the hardest question in the world to answer. Oh, yes. um, I, I can't tell you that, well. Well, you could have just started with me. You know, you read all yeah, my okay, books. Okay. I mean, that would right. have been the easy part. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> the gospel according to John. Uh, so for me, I, because, okay, so this is how it works for me. I have to feed the content monster. Right. I post about. 30 to 40 to 50 times a day with help. But, you know, I'm very active. And to be that active, I have to feed the content monster. And to feed the content monster, I have to constantly be looking at stuff. And so I get my ideas because I read. I read voraciously. I read every day, hours and hours of stuff. I love to read. And this is what it takes. And so, uh, you know, last night I flew from Nashville to San Francisco and in this issue of Popular Mechanics, there's a just outstanding article about what it takes to put out the New York Times every day. Hmm. And so that's going to end up in a post of mine. But that's, I, that's what I do. I just read voraciously. I am like a hummingbird. You know, hummingbird, if you track the hummingbird, 
it takes in about a quarter million calories per day for its body mass. Wow. So it extremely high metabolism, and that's kind of what I do. Yeah. Well, um, I, I think though the point there that is to me is very telling is that you're reading Popular Mechanics. I mean, Popular <laughs> Mechanics. No, I, I mean that. I mean that seriously. That that you know, you, you a lot of times people get stuck in this. Oh, I'm only reading books on marketing, or I'm only reading business books. And you know, you get outside there and you start reading books about science and art and architecture, and all of a sudden you you realize there are so many incredible ideas um, and inspiration that can come from those. Uh, but you have to. You do sometimes have to get outside the uh, the four walls. Yes, you absolutely do. And- for a long time, popular mechanics was not relevant, right? But now, if you, if you look at today's popular mechanics, like in my mind, you know, thinking about the last time I read popular mechanics, it was probably you know, 30 years ago, yeah. it was like ladies' home journal for men, right? Yeah. <laughs> but if you look at popular mechanics today, it's completely different. Yeah. It's closer to fast company or wired. Oh, yeah, that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, it used to be how to build your own home brew kit or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, but, absolutely. But, but, but you're right. Now it's, you know, it's taken on stuff that is uh, much more futuristic. Much. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, always great to uh, to catch up with you, Guy. The Art of the Start 2.0 is available everywhere they sell books. And, uh, and any resources or anything you want to point people to uh, uh, before we wrap up today? Well, everything that I stand for and have and promote and you know believe in and my blog and my information, everything is at GuyKawasaki.com. So uh, uh, I, uh, that's the that's sort that's, of the core the of my hub. existence. That's the place yeah. to go. Yeah. All right, guy. Thanks so much, and thank uh, you, John. We run into you out there on the road sometime soon. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye.